from Dixville Notch to Manchester, the first in the nation Republican primary, is the talk of America. Today, our guest is veteran political journalist James Pendell, the political reporter for the Boston Globe, and the former union leader columnist who Politico referred to as one of the must-follow journalists on the ground in Iowa, South Carolina, and New Hampshire. The Iowa caucus may be in the bank for Donald Trump, but the New Hampshire primary account is still wide open and may be the one primary contest that's keeping him awake at night. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. We look what's going on. I mean, my God. This was it. My kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. Well, James, welcome to the show. A lot's happening this week, obviously, as we're moving into New Hampshire. A lot has already happened, of course, in Iowa. But as a political junkie, I can't get over the words Dixville Notch. So is Dixville Notch still going to be the place to watch on primary night? You're talking about a small town. Actually, it's not even a town. It's uh, I think it's a township in way northern New Hampshire that's about uh, 12 miles from the Canadian border. And there they have a longtime grand resort. And they came up with this scheme to get people to book hotel rooms and get international publicity because they would get a waiver from the state uh, to hold their New Hampshire primary at midnight. And they did this, not just the primary, but also for the general election. It'd be the first place in America that would vote. Uh, and we're talking like 12 people. Uh, and the reason you could do the waiver is as long as everyone in town Right. Uh, all 12 voters or so, 20, 12, 20 to 12 voters voted at the same time, then, you know, you can you can announce it. it can, you can have it and you don't have to have the regular uh, hours, you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. But the long legend of Dixville Notch, which made West Wing, by the way, the, the TV show. Oh, no classic question. Dixville right. Notch scene. John McCain would visit there to convince people to vote. A number of candidates actually would go up every now and then to try to meet all 20 people and convince them to, to, to vote for them. So getting to the campaign itself, obviously, the popular governor of New Hampshire, Sununu, has made an endorsement in this race for Nikki Haley. Haley is looking at New Hampshire as kind of a, a springboard for what will follow, including one of your stomping grounds, South Carolina. How impactful is Sununu's endorsement? And why did the governor make this endorsement at this moment for Nikki? Number one, let's step back for a second. As you know, there are four states that begin this presidential process, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And all of them are quirky in their own particular reasons. But as a collective, it kind of does work. Donald Trump has always been extremely strong in Iowa, even though he's lost some cred with some Republicans there, and particularly the evangelical groups that make up about 70% of the Iowa caucuses have never been on board with another Trump run uh, in 2024. I went there uh, in 2021 for a major evangelical meeting, and I was stunned. I talked to 18 people in a row, not a single one. All Republicans, all cons all evangelical, wanted him to run again. God bless his heart, but the media is horrible to him or whatever you want to say. It's time to turn the page. But nonetheless, he's still, it was around 45%, and now consistently in Iowa, he's at over 50%. Can't beat that. But then South Carolina, he was obviously pretty strong. His strongest state was Nevada. But the weakest spot, is why I bring it up, has been New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump has never been close to 50%. There was one poll 
uh, recently that did have him over that, but it probably is an outlier. There's only one other poll in the spring that had him like that. This is where he was most vulnerable. Uh, independent voters make up 40% of the vote. I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. But if you were ever going to challenge, if there's ever going to be anyone who emerges, it was always going to be in New Hampshire, which does make the curious case for Ron DeSantis, we can get to later, why he has put everything absolutely into Iowa, given that New Hampshire was, it may not be the best fit for him politically, right. but it is the best play politically for any place. You've been in this game longer than I have, but I don't think we've ever seen a politician tumble up to make their endorsement matter more than the last two and a half years or three years as Chris Sununu. Remember, he flirted on running for the Senate and then said no. It raised his national profile. Will he or will he not run against Maggie Hassan? And then after that, it's like, well, maybe I'll run for president. And he starts traveling the country, really raised his national profile, did every single show, every single podcast he could possibly do, decides not to run for president. Again, not running for Senate, not running for president, heck, not running for re-election as he announces a month later, but suddenly he's like this thing. So in that sense, here's the truth. Uh, we at the Boston Globe, have uh, we're the largest paper in New Hampshire, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Yep. We're 30 minutes from the New Hampshire border. But where it matters, uh, in, our, in our polling, we found that only like 30% of registered Republican voters in this primary would even consider what he thinks. Mm. He's extremely popular. But I do think it matters in terms of the donor base. And I think you saw in Nikki's latest report, raised like $24 million in the last quarter of the year. And that obviously Sununu played a part in that. Not that he called people up. But it was another validation point that, like, actually, this is the train where it could be interesting. So obviously, the governor is on record, not terribly supportive of Donald Trump as the nominee. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a motivation. And of course, there's some family history. When you look at his father, who ended up in the White House for having chosen yes. wisely, we'll say in the past. You referenced, James, the kind of the voter registration about the independence, uh, 40 percent versus basically 30% Republican, 30% Democrat. I want to play you a clip that talks about what I think Donald Trump is probably most concerned about, which are the undeclared, the independent voters, mm -hmm. uh, and even some Democrats who may show up in the Republican primary on a particular day as ahead. In New Hampshire, so-called undeclared voters account for 40% of the electorate, meaning they can choose whichever primary they want to vote in, sometimes leading to results that are a little bit unpredictable. Thalia and Hella just changed their registration from Democrat to undeclared this cycle. The whole point was to stop Trump and make sure he's not the nominee. Is this your first time voting in a Republican primary in the state? Yes. Yep. Of course, they're three of many voters, but their mentality is similar to a lot of others I've talked to in the state. The big question is, do their views signal a broader trend, a potential liability for the former president and current frontrunner? How big a factor is this and how concerned would you be if you were in the Trump camp? Not that you are, but if you were in the Trump camp about something mm -hmm. that is somewhat beyond your control. Great questions. First, let's put a couple things to bed. Uh, that was a good piece from MSNBC. But those people are not representative of much. Uh, you had to, if you were a Democrat, and this is an important point, because I'll make a different point in a second. If you were a Democrat, you had to switch your party affiliation by a date in October, in early October. And so we, we had the numbers. Only about 5,000 people did. So it's not much. So there's not going to be a lot of like, when Trump says if he has an underperforming New Hampshire primary, it's not because Democrats rigged it. It's not true. Got it. 
independent voters are a growing slice of the electorate in New Hampshire, just like they are pretty much in every uh, state in the country. But you obviously have the incentive in New Hampshire to be an independent voter or an undeclared voter, technically, because you can play in whatever primary you want. Uh, they are going to play an outsized role in this particular primary, as they do everyone when there is an incumbent president. When you have both parties, it's interesting how it's going to work, say, for example, in 2000. You know, Bill Bradley was running against Al Gore, and he was banking a lot on New Hampshire. And he's like, I'm banking a lot on these independent voters who want something different than the sitting vice president. Well, he had a problem because John McCain was running. Right. And he also was right. banking everything on these undeclared voters who wanted something different than the establishment choice of George Bush. And we saw that Bill Bradley lost the New Hampshire primary. John McCain won it by 23 points uh, in 2000. And you can go down the line of where that played out. Bernie and Trump, by the way, in 2016, also had a little bit of interplay themselves. Both won the New Hampshire primary, both had to split some of that independent vote. So it is fascinating if you want to deep dive in a particularly a multi-candidate field like 2016, you do have ideological lanes, uh, uh, hardcore conservatives. you got a big libertarian wing in the liber live for your die state. Ron Paul came in second place, by the way, yeah. in the 2012 uh, Republican primary. And then you have sort of social moderates because it is New Hampshire. It is a New England state. It's the second least religious state in the country, for example, which is kind of a, a Rorschach test when you come after uh, Iowa. The independent voters kind of do vote as a block in terms of they want an interesting person. They want it uh, they, they they caught up into the personality as well as more moderation. And so if I am Donald Trump, it is absolutely a factor that I need to be thinking about. But James, you know, there is another factor here, as you know. On the Democratic side, there is essentially no primary. There's going to be a write-in effort, apparently, behind mm -hmm. President Biden. So you don't have maybe the bleeding off effect of independents exactly. going into either primary, it's really probably they're going to go into one. Doesn't that make it even more of a potential threat? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're going to play an outsized role, just like they do every single time there is an incumbent president running. Can I say one last thing, though, which is actually kind of interesting? We spend all this time talking about independent voters in New Hampshire, and we should, for the reasons you just said. It, will Democrats play? You know, if Nikki Haley is somehow emerged throughout after after New Hampshire as the clear alternative to Trump. You know, in South Carolina, anyone can vote. Uh, South Carolina does not have party registration. So you are not a registered Republican or registered independent or registered Democrat. And you can show up uh, as long as you didn't vote in the Democratic primary three weeks earlier. Democrats can show up in that Republican primary, which could be a sneaky thing we're going to hear a lot about if Nikki Haley is a factor heading into that South Carolina against uh, South Carolina primary against Donald Trump. That's fascinating. I, I I should have known that. You know, in South Carolina, I only learned it like a couple months ago. I was like, what? <laughs> and I kept I'm calling people. Like, this is true. <laughs> I'm always behind the curve. You know that, James. So obviously, in South Carolina, that would be the, essentially the first in the nation primary for the Democrats. So that's that's yet to be written. We'll talk to you about that when we get closer to South Carolina. Yeah, because New Hampshire is still the first right. primary. I mean, they're doing, they're doing more delegates, but it's logistically the first primary. And Biden's uh, number one challenger is Dean Phillips, this congressman from right. Minnesota, who is not on the ballot in South Carolina. So the real test will be New Hampshire. Obviously, a lot of this is about personality. You made that point earlier in the interview. Do issues count at all in New Hampshire? I mean, I've seen some of the polling as a view on abortion, on gender identity. Are those kinds of issues at all going to be determinants of what happens in New Hampshire? Or is this all a personality parade where we're going to see who's the most popular person in the class? They matter indirectly, 
They matter towards electability. Does it matter your position on abortion? It's not that I, as a voter, agree with you on your position, but boy, that answer is a lot better for the general election against an incumbent president. Can you mess around on guns? No. Can you mess around on the border? No. Right. But like foreign policy, there's a huge differences there. And I, it does matter to people indirectly <laughs> in terms of, well, I mean, I would prefer, you know, my second or third or fourth option about the position on Ukraine or a position on China or the position in the Middle East. But indirectly, it matters. But directly, it's about personality and positioning. CNN in Iowa decided to put on a debate. Donald Trump decided to put on a town hall, courtesy of Fox. Another CNN debate has been proposed for the mm -hmm. state of New Hampshire. Does Donald Trump actually show up, given Nikki Haley is emerging as the one obvious and potential contender for the nomination? Donald Trump does not want to give that debate any more ratings than he should. I mean, Nikki Haley needs as many eyeballs on that as possible. I think he'll try to find other ways to tear her down, but to, to increase ratings for the first Trump versus Nikki Haley debate. Um, I think it's more likely there isn't a debate than it, than there than Donald Trump is, is that one. Obviously, West Wing factors into a lot of things that <laughs> we do into Hedger politics. The mythology of American politics. Yeah. So I encourage all our viewers to go back go. and review the episodes of West Wing that bear in New Hampshire to stay very, very focused on the primary. I think this is, you talk about the melting pot of American politics, James. Hard to find a more turbulent place where careers are made and broken in the course of a, in a single primary election, as you'll find New Hampshire. You know, the week between Iowa and New Hampshire, I, I call the most magical, you know, eight days in American politics, where it's just so crazy. I mean, leading up to Iowa, we kind of know what's going to happen. But Iowa happens, boom, you know, there are three tickets out of Iowa that, that we say there's first class, there's business, and there's coach. That's it. But it rearranges everything. And then it's like, you wake up, it's like, Oh, this is the world now. And then every day is like a month and a half of the previous campaign. It's, it's wild. Give our viewers a sense of on election night, what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, the first votes coming from some hamlet being reported early. What happens next? What, are we, what should we look for to kind of have a feel of how election night is going to go? To directly answer your question on election night, uh, the first votes typically come and they're going to be really key in this race. It's a good question. The first votes will come from Manchester. Manchester has a faster voting system. Uh, Manchester is the largest municipality in the state by a lot. And it's also a good mix. So, But you tend to get more of those independent voters. It's a first test to figure out. Um, and by the way, it's not a, it, it's a big city for uh, New Hampshire. It's a pretty purple city. They just elected um, a new Republican mayor after a two-term Democratic mayor who's running for governor. So you'll get a first test if Nikki Haley's happening or not pretty darn early in the night. Uh, you'll get it. A, the polls close there at seven, by 830. You'll get the first indication about whether we're going to have a, an interesting evening or not. And then after that, it will trickle from certain towns to that town. But we're going to have a very first indicator that the first votes on Manchester, which probably be the first votes we see, period. Do you think that Donald Trump will be stronger outside of Manchester and that. In other words, if we see a margin for the former president that looks you know, fairly sizable, that pretty much is the ballgame, yes. isn't it? Yes. And, and one reason why is, now we're getting really in the weeds. This is how much you love this. Uh, <laughs> there are two at times the polling pull is close. Most of the state, 80% of the state or something like that is like, for back in the napkin, is closes at seven. 
And then there's a chunk that closes at eight because they're Boston suburbs. Those kind of exurbs where Donald Trump does well in the swing states that we talk about so often, these are the exurbs of Boston. And those will be the late ones that come in. And those will be more for Donald Trump than they would be for Nikki Haley or anyone else. So final question. It's always an expectations game. It's not always about technically yeah. winning and losing, but overperforming, right? Sure. What does Nikki Haley have to do to have a head of steam coming out of New Hampshire? And what does the governor of Florida do with a weak showing in New Hampshire as he moves forward and starts heading south? Donald Trump is a huge question. Um, obviously, it's the gap between himself and, and others. Nikki Haley is going to have to get probably 10% or less, um, 9% within Donald Trump for this to be super interesting. Of course, in this whole thing here, Nikki Haley actually does have a path. That's why we talk about her so much. Um, this this race immediately goes to South Carolina. Then after that, you know, there is this weird Nevada situation, which we don't have to get into. She's running in the primary, but it's a caucus at awards, right. so whatever. But then we have Super Tuesday, which is a media-driven situation. You can see how she could play in that. She doesn't have the advertising, but she's going to have so much earned media if she's a, if it's actually a contest in a race. DeSantis has none of that. I mean, he would have a Super Tuesday, which does go through some Southern states, the Ted Cruz style. Sure. But I think what we're forgetting is this fundamental thing about this presidential calendar, which is unlike any we've ever seen before. It's going to go from New Hampshire and then 31 days until the South Carolina primary. Wow. 31 days of nothing but, if Nikki Haley is a factor, Nikki Haley versus Donald Trump. Nikki Haley versus Donald Trump every single day. The battleground for this particular state, Trump will obviously then say, I'm gonna spend some time there, and then I'm gonna spend some time in Super Tuesday states, I'm a national candidate, and oh, I have to prepare for my trial that begins one day before the Super Tuesday on March 4th. So, you know, I, you know he's a busy guy. So Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, did, I think, better than people expected in Iowa mm -hmm. during the caucuses. He moves into New Hampshire, a tough place for him. South Carolina after that, also not very hospitable to his political fortunes. But then you had Super Tuesday. So is he alive and well or is he just breathing? I think, look, he's he's got to figure out a path. Uh, he's got to raise some money. There's no campaign you can compare it to the past, but it, Nikki Haley looks a lot like Marco Rubio was trying to do, and Ron DeSantis looks a lot like what T Ted Cruz was trying to do in 2016. So in Ted Cruz's case, he did show up in New Hampshire did some did a for a few days, then focused on other contests. I can see him leapfrogging immediately to South Carolina and to try to get some more inroads there and to even start to start trying to lay the groundwork for a Super Tuesday to at least raise money to give an argument. And he needs a path. He needs an argument for a path. So I don't think he's spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. So Linda Fowler, professor at Dartmouth, talks about the inevitability factor. If Donald Trump does well in New Hampshire, isn't this effectively, in a way, his Super Bowl that had become the path ahead for Nikki Haley and every, everybody else that's still breathing becomes that much more tremulous, if not near impossible? Yes. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about history for a second. I do that a lot, and I'm, I hope that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, the Iowa and New Hampshire have been together, like this system, since 1976. Okay, it's been 50 years, almost 50 years. In that time, no Republican ever has won Iowa and New Hampshire back to back. None. Donald Trump would be, is, would be the first. Uh, and it would put a lot to bed, whether his, we're, we're, remember, we're debating his margin of victory. That's what we're doing, of winning both states and forgetting the fact that no one's ever done that before. 
I will say it's, Democrats, by the way, have won both states. Uh, a few examples of where that's happened, but they have. And, and, and the one oddity that we will hear a lot about uh, after the New Hampshire primary is there's one historical anomaly. And it was last time. <laughs> Joe Biden. You know, you can make a conceivable argument that Pete Buttigieg won the caucuses in Iowa, but they reported two different facts. And Bernie Sanders actually won the popular vote, if you want to give it that way. And then he won the New Hampshire primary and then he won Nevada. He won the first three states. That's never happened before. Hillary Clinton didn't pull that off. Okay. And then what happens next? Joe Biden, who comes in fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, third in Nevada, wins the South Carolina primary in probably the weirdest 72 hours in American politics between the South Carolina primary on a Saturday and Super Tuesday, that following Tuesday, Joe Biden becomes inevitable and the nominee. So is Nikki Haley going to make that argument that she's the next you know, coming of Joe Biden in the presidential primary process? Yes. Is it? Is she? Probably no. It's so historically rare, particularly Bernie Sanders. People had a reason to vote against him. They thought he was unelectable. And all these polls right now show that Donald Trump, while Nikki Haley would be more electable than Donald Trump, shows that he's still beating Biden. So it's less of an argument. So you're saying that Nikki Haley has to hope that the Biden model, the very person she wants to run against for president of the United States, helps her secure the nomination. You talk about the ultimate ironies. Yeah, exactly. Right. Joe Biden right. says South Carolina is going to make my campaign. This is where I get my start. Nikki Haley is going to say, New Hampshire, that was really helpful. But, you know, I'm from South Carolina. I'm going to get my start there and it's going to launch me to Super Tuesday. Uh, she has a little bit more time. But again, one thing that Nikki Haley has that Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden never had is that 31 day gap where all we're going to be talking about is South Carolina. We're going to have all the counties memorized in terms of the low, the low country and area, you know, upstate and all this stuff. We're going to have them all memorized in those 31 days, which will be key. Or if, as you said, if Donald Trump has convincing wins in both states, um, we aren't going to memorize anything about South Carolina because the race is over. Well, James, stay warm wherever you are. Iowa, <laughs> New Hampshire, South Carolina yeah. will be a little bit warmer by the time I mean, you head I'm south. To that. Right. Yeah. Obviously, this is an election for everybody to keep close tabs on. The one thing we know about American politics Everything is so unpredictable, especially in 2024. Oh Whatever you would least expect is maybe most likely to happen, including perhaps a real competitive race for the Republican nomination for president. Thanks for joining us on 13th and Park. Stay well. Thank you. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park.